Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and this is a very special show today. I have a guest with me who is a writer and a singer and just an all-around great person, Valerie Niemerg. Welcome to Opera for Everyone. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I have finished reading Ellie Uncomposed, your amazing book, which I can't say it's inspired by the Marriage of Figaro, Nozze de Figaro, but that is the inspiration that, that lives and breathes in it. But there's so much more. By the way, everyone who's listening, we are going to talk through Marriage of Figaro, and you're going to be so prepared for when you see this. You must go see the whole opera. You're going to listen to the podcast, you're going to go see the opera, and then you're going to read Valerie's book. You will get so much out of it. It's so much fun. But Valerie, could you just introduce your book, Ellie Composed? Well, I'm a retired opera singer, as you know. And, you know, I was the mezzo-soprano, which means I never got the glorious roles. <laughs> <laughs> I had to spend a lot of time sitting backstage while the soprano and the baritone fought it out. Yes, <laughs> yes. In particular, in this opera, right? I played Carabino a lot. And I remember sitting backstage during the second act finale once thinking, they keep trying to get into that closet. And they spend 20 minutes trying to get into that closet in the second act finale. And how would a modern woman handle that? How would a contemporary woman handle that? And she would probably just take an ax and break the darn closet door down. (laughs) (laughs) So it kind of spread from there. And then I thought, well, what's a modern woman doing there anyway? And what would a 21st century woman do? in 18th century marriage of Figaro, what would happen? And that's kind of what spawned Ellie. And that's her story. She magically gets transported back into the 18th century and, you know, can't find a Starbucks anywhere. <laughs> yeah, and she just wants hair conditioner as well. Or, yeah, she just, or dish soap. Yeah, or some, some sanitizing stuff for her hands, yeah, right? Yeah. But she finds humanity is there as it was here. And relating to human beings is the same story back then as it was now. And so in that way, she learns as she goes through her adventures that, oh, I I really did learn a lot at the opera. And I really learned a lot that could get me through some tough times. Yeah. And as as I recall, Marriage of Figaro, Nozze de Figaro, premieres its in the late 18th century. It's 1786. Yes. I tried to make it right about the same time. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a, a darling little thing where she explains to someone that she's an American. And they're like, oh, do you, you know, did your father fight with General Washington? <laughs> Which is, I mean, there's all sorts of fun stuff in there like it. But while those things are fun, there it, it is very serious looking at how women are treated, how these different, it's not just, it's not just gender. It's also the class element, which is so present in the original play as well as in the original libretto. Well, we should mention that this this story is based on one of the plays in a trilogy written by mm-hmm. a Frenchman, Beaumarchais, we'll call him for short because he's got a very long name, but he'll go by Beaumarchais. And Barber of Seville, the very famous Rossini opera, was also a very famous play by the same fellow. But Mozart would not, of course, have known the Rossini That's right. He would have known an earlier version. So there's just all these different influences and so much for you to work with. And you and you do it in this book. It's stunning to read. I confess I've read it twice now and I saw even more in it the second time than I saw the first time. And I loved it the first time. Oh, thank you. I love Marriage of Figure. I use it as an example when I do educational outreach programs. 
I use Marriage of Figaro as an example of the borderless quality of opera mm. because it's this trilogy, which doesn't happen very often in opera, right? We don't often have sequential operas. I mean, there's the whole Wagner thing, but most of the time an opera is an entity of itself. But this trilogy of plays written by Beaumarchais right before the French Revolution really made a comedy of what was very seriously going on between the classes during the Enlightenment. But it was written in France. Right. But then the opera, Marriage of Figaro, takes place in Spain, but it's sung in Italian. Yeah. <laughs> and it That's was opera set, for you. <laughs> <laughs> set by a German composer mm. living in Austria. So you have this whole conglomeration of Western civilization that kind of comes together in this opera, which is awesome because it represents not just one people's but the kind of struggle that all the peoples were going through at that time. Well, yeah. Beaumarchais, I think, very self-consciously, he's an Enlightenment fellow. He's someone who, well, he didn't just believe in the ideals of the American and French Revolution. He actively worked to support those efforts, throwing over the monarchy or, or at least getting out from underneath the discriminatory practices of the monarchy and the aristocracy. Right. And it's interesting because in Vienna, where this premieres in 1786, Beaumarchais's play had been prohibited by the yeah. emperor from being shown. And then suddenly Mozart and De Ponte, his librettist, they come up with this opera based on a, a forbidden play. How did they work that out? How did they get to put this thing on for the emperor? Yeah, that is kind of a mystery. I think the movie Amadeus hits on that a little bit. Somebody tries to get him in trouble. But he did it with such panache and such genius. Both of them, the team was like the dynamic duo of opera writing, yeah. Mozart and Da Ponte, right. that I think it sold it. And also, you know, it, it really represents that the people loved these plays. I mean, they were, they were the rage. Yes. So it really shows how things were changing. And Emperor Joseph at the time was kind of seen as a, a forerunner of the Enlightenment. He was kind of seen as the guy who was going to move things along. But it's kind of funny to me when we talk about, as we will later on, the social issues that Marriage of Figaro deals with. Mm -hmm. Those things are now very serious to us. But it was what they laughed about back then. It was a comedy. This is not a tragedy. We don't have a dead soprano at the end, right? <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> jumping a, off the parapet, yes. <laughs> this is considered a very funny play and a very funny opera. Mm -hmm. And we listen to that now and we're like, this is very serious feminine issues. Yeah. But there are other things that they laughed at then also that are in this play that we don't think are funny at all now. And they're really socially unacceptable to be laughing at them. So we kind of have that quandary of what to do about all that I often think that with some of these operas that were not just Marriage of Figaro, but others as well, the people presenting the operas have to come up with ways to either ignore these things, not include them, or somehow put them in context. But and it's amazing what a, what a good director, a production yeah. can do to, to keep what's good about these works of art and still present them to people, but you know, have to deal with modern sensibilities. And so that's why it's so fun that your book, Elian Composed, takes a modern woman and plops her here in Seville, or just outside of Seville on the Count's estate mostly, and has her trying to, well, trying to survive and not talk like a 21st century woman, <laughs> <laughs> but also trying to understand what women 
of that period of time had to endure and navigate. And even in Marriage of Figaro, even in the story, there is that undercurrent of seriousness. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was part of Mozart's genius is we're laughing about it, but it's really not funny. Well, you think of it now, I think, I guess, some of our our very successful comedians in the world right now, they actually deal with very serious topics. So um, they're following in Mozart and Duponti's footsteps. That's true. (laughs) That's true. It's Or maybe sometimes comedy softens the edge of things that are difficult to talk about. It, It makes a way to present things. In fact, one of the bits that I read talked about towards the end of the opera, that Figaro has a very fiery speech yes. that would be considered revolutionary. And that was one of the things that the censors really objected to. And, oh. and in the opera, it, it gets turned around where he gets upset about the way women behave because he yeah. misunderstands what's actually going on at a, at a particular moment. So they soften it a little bit. Well, can I just step back for a moment and ask you about yourself? You said you're a retired opera singer and you've played carabino. So I I take it that means you're a mezzo-soprano. Yes, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into opera singing in the first place? Well, I've always wanted to sing. I remember when I was a little child taking piano lessons. And and it's the bane of every piano teacher's (laughs) existence that the child doesn't practice. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those kids. I never practiced. I loved music. I loved everything about it, but I could just never have disciplined myself enough to practice. And this piano teacher, she knew my family was religious. And she said to me one day, she's trying to, you know, trick me into practicing or guilt me. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever the technique (laughs) was now that I'm doing with my own students. All of the above, probably. Um, (laughs) All of the above. She said, you know, when you get to heaven, God's going to ask what you did with your music talent. And I, I, might, I was so little, my feet couldn't even touch the floor yet. I still was dangling off the bench. And I whipped my little torso around and looked at that woman and said, I'm going to tell him I was a singer. <laughs> so Yikes. I've always known. You've always known, yeah. but that's some pretty heavy stuff to lay on a small child. <laughs> <laughs> I just always knew I, I loved singing. and It was just a part of me. So I was very lucky to go to an arts high school. Yes. Where I well, actually went as an acting major which was like one of the smartest things I ever did because when you go to music school mm-hmm. and you work with opera singers, though they may be really well-trained vocally, most of them have never had an acting class. So um, the directors loved me and I got cast probably in a lot more operas than I should have been in. <laughs> you know, that's um, such an interesting observation because as somebody who doesn't pull apart the details of the music, just enjoys the music, but I love the story and I love the drama, a performer, a singer who can also act, it's spectacular. No wonder they put you in those roles. I, I, oh. I applaud. I agree. It's, it really, it's very helpful because it's, you, when you go to see an opera, you, you are going to see the drama. Well, I haven't been in music school in a long time, but when I was back in the 90s, it was really, opera was transitioning from what's known as the park and bark singer I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I have heard that. Would you explain it, though? <laughs> so it basically means that someone with a fabulous instrument and a masterful technique comes out on stage, stands there, and just sings the poop out of that piece and <laughs> fills the hall and blows everybody away with her amazing sound and her amazing technique and her amazing voice. But she's not interacting with the other characters, mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't have the sincerity of a singer like Callis, mm-hmm. who really just melted into whatever character she was playing, Maria Callas. So 
there's the Park and Bark singers, and then there's the Maria Callas's. Now, she was earlier, but she was Maria Callas for a reason, yeah. right? <laughs> we know her name <laughs> for a reason. Mm. Yeah, and one of those reasons was she was just a revolutionary, both as an actress and a singer. Mm. But in the 90s, when I was studying, it was really transitioning. Directors wanted somebody who could run around the stage and interact with the other characters and do the Shakespeare thing in the opera. Right. And that's very hard. I had a hard time with it at first. I remember being at Eastman where I went to school and writing my acting teacher from high school. This is really hard because I have to, I'm stuck with the beat. Yeah. I used to say that to him. I, all of a sudden I have this beat and I have to be done with that sentence in three quarter notes. I can't mm -hmm. hold it until I'm emotionally ready mm -hmm. to move on to the next thing. Do you really have, that is very hard to be an opera singer yeah. and have this set timing. It's very set timing for your emotional journey. And on top of everything else, breathing and support and all that stuff. I, I can only imagine. I think about that sometimes when I watch Baroque operas and they're going through it the three times with the da capo arias. And when they stage them these days, they, they keep things really moving to keep people's, yes. I mean, the park and bark would be like, for me, it'd be sleep inducing, I think. But directors are so creative these days. They have them, the choreography, lots of supernumeraries oftentimes, and the movement around, which bolsters what they're trying to convey with each repetition of the words, but things are really developing emotionally. Absolutely. It's really transitioned in the last two decades, I think. And I think anyone who went to the opera before that and kind of experienced a Baroque opera where they just sing those refrains over and over without any of that creativity, I think they need to go back, right. <laughs> give it another shot, because it really has changed. Yeah, it's mostly Handel, I think, that I'm seeing these days. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm in favor of the change. I, anything that makes the story and the drama come alive, that's what, I mean, because that's why opera, to me, is so wonderful, is because it is all of these elements that are brought to telling a story and to the emotional truth that existed in the, just to bring it back, <laughs> that existed in the 18th century, straight on through to the 21st century, and also backwards in time. I mean, that's why we even do Greek tragedies and those yeah. get made into operas as well. They're the human story. And I think our generation thinks, you know, what can I learn from an 18th century? Why would I want to tell some dumb 18th century story? And I can go watch Tom Cruise save the world again, you know? Yeah. Um, what's the value in there? But these, these stories, I think Elian composed, hopefully, yes. conveys that, is the stories are universal. Yeah. The stories are timeless, and that's why they've lasted 200 years. Absolutely. The stories are powerful in and of themselves, and then that power is is only enhanced with the exquisite music and these productions and that are often very creative and, and very helpful to the, to the story. Yeah. I, I, I'm just going back to you talking about being a mezzo. There is a small piece in the book when the book is, I'm not going to give too much away about the book, by the way, I'll try not to anyway. Um, there's a bit of back and forth with Ellie Elizabeth, our main character where she's in the 18th century, but she's remembering bits of her life back in the 21st century. And when she she is working as a pianist, accompanying and coaching singers, and she's consoling this poor mezzo-soprano who's just <laughs> bereft. I, I figured as much. <laughs> she's just bereft that she's looking at the soprano in this exquisite ball gown being perfectly fitted and everything's shimmering. And there she is in her her man's outfit her, and and, her pants. and Elizabeth yeah. consoles her by saying, but you're going to learn to fight with a sword. <laughs> and I got to do that. I got to fight in several sword fights. 
Yeah, that was me. That was my story. That was my nod to the mezzo plight. <laughs> but yeah, actually, I remember telling my father, um, I have a lot of funny stories about being a mezzo. You know, mezzos often have to play the boys. Yes. And we'll talk about this in Marriage of Figaro. There's a mezzo who plays the boys. good old Carabino. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I remember telling my father, well, I was going to be an opera singer. And here he is, you know, second generation Italian immigrant from New York. And he's all excited. He says, you're going to sing Madama Butterfly, you know, and I just like sat really quiet at the table, rocking back and forth, like, no, but I might bring her her shoes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> but I did get to sword fight and do a lot of fun stuff that mezzos do get to do. And it was a wonderful adventure. You know, I just like to complain about it because I'm a diva and I have to make things more dramatic. <laughs> Well, I think you you brought your flair for drama and getting inside characters' heads in Alien Composed. I I was just I loved some of the comments that the characters or Ellie makes to herself and the other characters make out loud about just the way people behave. It it's it's a lot of fun. Well, I think now we might jump into talking about Le Nozze de Figaro, the opera by Mozart with his brilliant librettist, Lorenzo de Ponte. We're going to launch into the opera and it'll give us an opportunity not just to prepare anyone who wants to see Nozze de Figaro or learn more about Nozze de Figaro, it, and, and particularly from a musician's point of view. It'll also give us an opportunity to talk a little bit more about some of these, these themes and ideas you explore in L.A. Uncomposed. Awesome. So as with any opera, should we start with the overture. This overture in particular is a masterpiece and it's very famous. I think anyone who hasn't any exposure to the opera would recognize this piece. Yeah. It's, it's a bit that gets, it gets used in commercial ways as well as when you're going to see the opera or, or a, a symphony piece. I listened to it so many times when I was writing Ellie Uncomposed that I can't help now when I hear it. I see her, you know, running across Gaspar's cheese farm or trying to scale fish in the Count's basement while she's working in the scullery and just kind of having her adventure.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am here with special guest Valerie Niemerg, who has written a book, Ellie Uncomposed, a wonderful bit of historical fiction, opera fiction, inspired by Le Nozze de Figaro, The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. And we've just heard that famous overture. But as the opera opens, Valerie, what do we see? So it is such an interesting way to open an opera. We open on our two main characters, Figaro and his intended bride, Susanna. And they are both now servants in the house of Count Almaviva. So in a way, a lot of the first act acts like any sequel would. Mm. We first have to set up we have a problem. And that's exactly what this scene does. It sets up the problem that the rest of the opera will be about. Now, that's good storytelling. But then immediately they launch into, okay, let's review what happened in the previous show. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right? That's good. Although some of the people may have known it because of the popularity of these plays at the time, but they review for us. So here's the review. Uh, Here's the situation in this (laughs) plot, which if you go into this opera and you don't know this background of the plot, I think it makes it a little harder to know what's going on. So what you need to know is this main guy, Figaro, Mm -hmm. uh, what a funny name, right? A lot of people associate that with the famous aria that was, you know, just saved by Bugs Bunny, right? Figaro, Figaro, Figaro. But that doesn't actually come from this opera. No. That comes from the prequel, which is The Barber of Seville. Mm-hmm. And the three plays, and these are three plays, because obviously, as you said, Mozart would never have heard Rossini's Barber of Seville because no. Rossini was <laughs> after Mozart. But he knew the plays, and everybody knew the plays. So in the prequel, Figaro is this kind of itinerant barber, and he walks around Seville, and he, he serves everybody. He goes from house to house, door to door, and a barber meant much more back then than it does now. Not just cutting hair. No, no, no. no he doesn't, <laughs> although he does in the Barber Seville cut uh, somebody's hair or shave their beard, mm-hmm. but it, it meant a pharmaceutical mm-hmm. um, sort of doctor or, you know, he had to carry whatever medicines they had of the day whatever you had that was ailing you. And he also was the deliverer of messages. Oh, yes. Well, because he knows everyone. He knows everyone. Everyone knows that that darn Figaro. So when two lovers are in pursuit of one another, he passes the messages between them. And mm-hmm. that's kind of his you know, job. And that's what that aria, Figaro, 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 is about. And at the end of Barber Seville, Figaro has helped the local rich guy, the Count, to steal his bride away from this old miserly guy, Dr. Bartolo. But she wants to be stolen. Let's be clear oh, about she that. Wants, well, who wouldn't want to be stolen? <laughs> <laughs> you can marry the old miserly guy, Dr. Bartolo, or you can marry the really handsome guy uh, who's singing outside your window and has a ton of money. Yeah. So she wants to be stolen. So she marries the Count. Rosina marries the Count at the end of the Barber Seville, but only mm. because of the intercessory work of Figaro. Good old Figaro. <laughs> so thus, you know, that ends Barber Seville. So here we open Marriage of Figaro, and we're now in the Count's house. He has married Rosina, mm-hmm. and we're in his big, huge estate. Mm-hmm. You know, go online and look at some pictures of 18th century European estates, and you'll see these massive, sprawling houses. And it was very common for them to have vineyards and farms, and he's even got an army over the hill. You know, he's got everything on his estate. And they would have these big houses in the back 
where all the work was done, right? Right. All the all the blacksmithing and mm-hmm. all the fabricating and all this was done on the count's estate, right? Because their whole economic engines, the whole estate system, and he's got to protect or, or be able to loan his soldiers out to someone. And he would have ships that would transport goods in Spain. He could have grown anything from wine to oranges. Mm-hmm. So a very different setup economically. But Figaro is the head of this house. He's what's called the major domo. So that was his prize for helping the count to win Rosina. Is you want to come work for me now? I'll give you a big job. You're in charge. Like you think of Downton Abbey. He's the main butler guy. Um, His name I can't remember. The one in charge, Carl Carlson, Carlson, I think, who is in charge of everything. And he is in a small room in the estate in the opening scene with this Mm -hmm. lovely little woman named Susanna. And you find out almost immediately that they are in love mm-hmm. and they are engaged to be married. So that's why we call it the marriage of Figaro. We've done the marriage of the Count. Yes. This opera, Figaro's going to get married. And he's measuring the floor. He's counting. The, the, the first words of the opera are cinque, dieci, five, ten. He's counting and he's measuring the floor. By the way, I noticed that you can't just speak those words. You have to semi-sing them. <laughs> I, I heard that. <laughs> I can't help it. I don't hear them spoken. Yeah, yeah. So he's measuring. He's measuring the floor for a bed. Mm. And Susanna says to him, what are are you doing? You're counting and measuring in this little dumb room between, we get the impression that the room is between the count and the countess's chambers. Right. Another cultural thing. The count and the countess are married, but they don't sleep in the same room. They have their own chambers, one on each side. Right. As, as, or, or. Sets of chambers per aristocrat. Yes, yeah, sets of chambers. Each of them would have several rooms, Mm -hmm. a dressing room, a greeting room. And we get the impression from the opera that this room they're measuring is right in the middle Mm -hmm. between the two. And Figaro uh, tells her, well, isn't this great? The Count has offered to let us live in this room. And it's so easy. We're going to live right here. We don't have to live downstairs anymore, far away. I'll be right there when the Count calls and you'll be right here when the Countess calls. And all we have to do is step up two steps and we're serving our Lord and his wife. And meanwhile, while Figaro is so enthralled with all of this you've just described, Susanna is working on a hat or a bridal right. hat. There's a veil That's involved. Right. And Figaro's not looking at her. He's not really <laughs> responding to her. He's he's in this world that he's imagining how wonderful this is going to be. We get a room of our own and it's so convenient. Isn't that great? And once he tells her all this. <laughs> she goes crazy. Slap, slap. But you know, she doesn't actually slap him, but <laughs> metaphorically she does. We immediately learn that Susanna is not a just a picture perfect little pretty girl. She's got some backbone and some character and she stands up to him and speaks the truth to him and tells him the truth right away. Yeah. So we get their relationship, but we also get, because he's not paying attention to her, I mean, that's like so normal, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm working on this, uh, this measuring these, putting in the big heavy furniture, dear. And she's she's sewing a hat and she's very excited about the wedding and he's got his own kind of excitement because after all, it's a bed he's measuring for. It's a bed. Yeah. <laughs> Let's listen to a little bit of this song and this scene that you've just described. Oh, <laughs> 
So Susanna and Figaro are there in the little room, and she is not agreeing with him about the convenience of this little room. That's what comes out in the next recitative. So now we have a section of recitative. Maybe we should talk about that a little bit now? Please. So in this style of Mozartian opera, and this operas during this period and earlier, the orchestra didn't play all the time, like you might have in a Verdi opera, a Puccini opera. Right. They would play pieces, and then they'd stop, and the harpsichordist would sit down and play along with what's called the recitative sections. So in between all the songs, duets, chorus numbers, there are these moments of conversation. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like you could compare it to American musical theater. We talk, 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 and then we sing a song. And a right. lot of the action happens during the talking. It's just sung talking. Yes. The difference is <laughs> in opera, it's sung talking with this harpsichording, mm-hmm. harpsichordial, we'll say, accompaniment. So it might sound a little strange to the new listener when they first hear that kind of spoken, sung talking. But usually the actors are very good and, and you often forget they're singing while they're running around the stage and talking. So we have a little recitative scene here where Susanna basically blows up on Figaro and says, you can't move us in here. Yeah. And he says, why not? He kind of gets indignant. You know, how dare you say that woman? And um, (laughs) (laughs) this is all working out perfectly. (laughs) And she's just brilliant. She knows it's just a, she actually has a little piece of sarcasm in the next duet that ensues. She says, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. You know, you're going to get a little bell ringing. You know, the servant is called with a bell and the master's going to call you. And she exemplifies the count calling him with a dong, dong. And she exemplifies the countess calling her with a ding, 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 kind of different sounding pitches. And she says, and he's going to send you off on an errand into the town to get something. And then he's going to come in here and find me alone. Right. And it's going to be very easy for him. And this is the first time this occurs to Figaro that the count is after Susanna. This is the revelation. This is the problem of the opera. This is the problem. Yeah. The count fancies Susanna and he essentially thinks he has a right to that interest and to her attentions. Besides that, there's this talk of this dowry that the Count has said he's going to provide for Susanna. Not something at all expected to provide for his wife's chambermaid. No. And she's like, listen, buddy, why do you think he's offering that? Wake up. (laughs) So maybe it would be useful to talk briefly about the Roi de Seigneur. Absolutely. Okay, so when Mozart, when this opera takes place, we're at a changing point in history because before this, the Roi de Seigneur was this feudal right in which a landowner kind of had wedding night rights to the virgins on his property or in his employ, let's say. Mm-hmm. And that went on for centuries in this feudal system. And it's, it's slowly breaking down in this century. And little by little, landowners are coming out and publicly saying, you know, and that's this landowner is an example of that. He's publicly said, I abolish this terrible feudal right. 
But privately, he's still hoping he can get away with it. Right. And that's why it takes Figaro so by surprise, because he's made this public proclamation of giving up this right. And this is right in keeping with what we talked about, these enlightenment ideals, the people who are pressing up against aristocratic privilege and how there needed to be equality under the law, things that sound so direct and simple to us now. That was not part of how society worked at that time. And that's why the French Revolution erupted because of all the aristocratic privileges. And by the way, it's 1789 when the French Revolution initially is sparked. It takes a long time to work its way through. So it's a little bit before the actual outbreak of the French Revolution. Of course, the American Revolution has already started, but that is distant. (laughs) But it's interesting how also this opera is about, in the end, when you get to the end of all this ridiculousness. Mm -hmm you have this moment where you realize this opera is about the plight of the woman. Yes. Yes. And the woman was the victim of these ancient feudal rights. And this opera really clearly and powerfully states it, even though it's comedy all the way through, you get to the end and you're like, wait, a, this isn't funny. This is, this is a woman's right to her sexuality. That's what's being fought over here. Right. Yeah. The rights of the lower class were not respected much at all, and certainly not their marriages. And that's part of what was all tied into this droit de seigneur, where he could, you know, enjoy the women on his property prior to their marriage. Well, anyway, Figaro (laughs) finally decides to believe Susanna. Yes. Says, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, how does he respond once he realizes she's correct? He sings a fantastic, he does exactly what you're supposed to do in an opera. He (laughs) sings about it. Yeah. (laughs) He sings a very famous aria called Se Voile Ballare, which translated means, if you want to dance. Ha. And he's not talking about dancing, though, is he? No, but he's talking about, because here's the, here, talk about a betrayal, yeah. right? He helped the Count to yes. get his wife, mm-hmm. and now it's time for Figaro to marry, and the Count is trying to seduce her before Figaro can get marry her, you know? So he's he's like, all right, you think you can be... Sneaky and deceptive. You're, I'm the master at this stuff. If you want to dance, let's dance. Yeah. And that's what he's basically saying in this. Bring it. Bring it, yeah. sir. Bring it. This is a literal <laughs> translation. If you want to dance, Sir Count, I'll play the guitar for you. I'll play the guitar while you dance. If you want to come to my school, I'll teach you the moves, basically. Yeah. You're on my domain now if you think you're going to fool me and a messy face. This is Save Wall Ballade, Figaro's first introductory aria. It kind of sets the tone of what's going to happen. Sapo, 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 Sapo,
ti schiervendo, l'arte adoprando, di capongendo, di la scherzando, tutte le mattine ero leggero, lo leggero. L'arte schiervendo, l'arte adoprando, di capongendo, di la scherzando, tutte le mattine ero leggero, tutte le mattine ero leggero, tutte le mattine ero leggero, lo leggero, lo leggero. Listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is La Nozze de Figaro, The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's masterpiece. And I'm here with Valerie Niemerg. Valerie, oh, love that Figaro. <laughs> he lays this all down and he leaves. Yes. And a new character steps onto the stage who we haven't met yet and who seems like they have nothing to do with the plot, right? <laughs> That's what a marriage of Figaro feels a little bit like. When these characters keep sticking on stage, you're like, well, now who is this person? Yeah, yeah. Well, they let us know little by little who they exactly. are. So if you know the prequel story, you'll immediately know who this guy is. Dr. Bartolo. Yeah, he comes in and he says, La Vendetta, which is vengeance, vengeance. So this is the miser that Rosina was supposed to marry in Barber of Seville, who Figaro helped steal Rosina away from for the count. He was trying to marry her, trying to force her to marry him. So he's always looking for a way to get back at Figaro. Yeah, it's not like she'd been betrothed. She was his ward. Yes. And he concocted this scheme to get a hold of her money and her. So Figaro fouled that plan. And what's interesting to me is that when Bartolo first appears on the stage in Marriage of Figaro, he's talking about his vendetta against Figaro. Right. But he never says anything about the Count. Well, you can take on a servant. It's harder to take on the count who's in charge of everything in the region. Yes. I, I mean, I think it's just classism and understanding the reality of the count's power. Because Figaro, theoretically, except that he's Figaro, can't do as much against him. And he doesn't enter alone initially. He comes in with Marcellina. That's right. This woman whom we don't have from the prequel, from Barber of Seville. And she's waving around this contract, this piece of paper that says, OK, I need your help. I hear Figaro wants to get married, but I'm going to stop it because he's supposed to marry me. He owes me money and he signed a piece of paper that said I can marry him if he doesn't pay up. And he's like, I'm in because I, I have an axe to grind with Figaro too. <laughs> so let's hear just a little bit about how he feels about La Vendetta or getting his revenge. La Vendetta Lovely, 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 lovely
Well, here we are listening to The Marriage of Figaro, and I have apologies to offer because while the music was playing, Valerie let me know that I was not pronouncing that first article correctly. So apologies to those of you who understand or speak Italian, Le Nozze de Figaro. I'm, I'm, please correct me anytime um, because I do not speak Italian. (laughs) Just a word here and there. You're doing great. Thanks. (laughs) You know, they used to tell us in opera school, if you're in a chorus and you forget the words, just start saying pasta names. Vermicelli, rigatoni, linguini. <laughs> I'm not sure that works for opera for everyone, but I'm, no. <laughs> I'm glad to know that. <laughs> All right. So we understand about Dr. Bartolo and why he's angry with Figaro and why both he and Marcellina's aims line up with preventing this marriage. So there's, impe- you know, the goal is the marriage, the impediment is the count. And it's also these two. And there's this funny little scene that we won't play any music from between Susanna and Marcellina, which is veiled hostility, perhaps, between the two women because Figaro, right? A little bit of a love triangle. Well, Marcellina's contract is not a secret, you know, so mm. everyone knows about it. She's been, you know, pursuing and blushing around Figaro and just watching his love for Susanna grow on the property as they work and just... We're given the impression that this character, Marcellina, is older, significantly older than Susanna. And in this duet, Susanna really plays that up and plays up her youth and beauty, which, you know, makes a funny scene because we get the old spinster being laughed at and she kind of gets shooed off the stage. But it's also kind of sad that we're making fun of a woman who wasn't able to get married for one reason or another. Uh, We later find out that it was Bartolo himself who was supposed to have married her and didn't. We know that she's the head of the household, so she has a, a role of position and esteem, and she's actually Susanna's boss. <laughs> but in the, in the realm of servants, Susanna serves the countess. Right. She's actually higher than Marcellina, but Marcellina runs the house, so she's a servant under her. So it's kind of a complicated relationship already. Mm-hmm. But in the opera... And in the play, it just really sets up this spinster kind of character for Marcellina, which is not something we today would do. How old is she? Maybe she's in her 30s? Well, she's got to be a little older for reasons we find out later on. She's a generation older than Susanna, I would say, for reasons we will make abundantly clear soon. (laughs) But one thing I wanted to hit on in the book, Ellie Uncomposed, was this kind of discrimination against an older woman and the cruelty that she was being treated with. So making fun of a spinster like this is not something we would do today. And mm. it's kind of cruel. It's a party who feels bad for Marcellina when she gets kicked off the stage. So in Ellie Uncomposed, I really wanted to hit on that character, Marcellina. You did so beautifully. You gave her oh, thanks. You gave her more personality that lets us understand her, but also backstory. Backstory, as you're going to find out later in the opera... There's a backstory, and this woman is not just an object of ridicule. She actually is, her plight is real because of the way men treated her in the past and because of some suffering she had because of her position as a woman in society and her position in the servant class. So as funny as it is to watch the opera, it's kind of sad. Absolutely. Well, we move from this this scene with Marcellina, Mm -hmm. and we get to meet another character. character comes on the stage. That's that's what the first act's all about. (laughs) That's what the first act is all about. It's like one character after another coming onto the stage. And this one is totally new. 
even the younger generation than Figaro and Susanna, a teenage boy yes. who is acting as the page for the count. Mm-hmm. And this moment in the opera where this boy runs onto the stage and starts A, flirting, and B, gabbing with Susanna, mm-hmm. is always a little confusing for the new opera goer because they're not expecting the strange sounds coming out of the boy's mouth. It's not strange. It just sounds strange. somewhat feminine, right? It is. It's because Carabino, as all young boys in this time period in opera, is actually played by a woman, mm-hmm. played by the mezzo-soprano. And I just say that because, strange, because I remember as a young child, my first opera experience was Deflator Mouse. And I remember ah. watching it with my family. We were laughing and having a great time. But when Prince... Orlovsky came onto the stage right. as just a young kid. We all kept looking at each other going, is that a woman or a man? Like, it yeah. sounds like a woman, but it looks like a man. And not until years later did I figure that out, that it's that was the tradition back then. To find a voice that could sound more like a prepubescent, almost pubescent, you know, male, a young man, not quite a man yet, they would use a woman. Yeah. And I mean, prior to that, you had even more complicated gender issues when you would have the castrati performing in some of those. I mean, it was just the high voices, which in fact were men. And now we have to have counter tenors, men who who train themselves to sing high or or have a mezzo play those roles. I mean, so uh, opera does this. Opera just does this. Opera does this. (laughs) This is just the way opera is. This is normal. This was normal. Well, it was a way of having a full-fledged adult play the role, but conveying that it was a very young man or boy. I mean, that's the whole thing with Carabino, honestly, is that he's transitioning from boy to man. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. And that's the character that comes out onto the stage next. And what's interesting to me is Susanna has never left. I mean, she left the stage when Bartolo came on Mm -hmm. and then she comes back on and she sees her the rest of the act. She works hard in this. She works hard in this show. She has to learn about 150 pages of recitative, whoever Mm. the soprano is who plays Susanna. And the characters just, you know, Marcellina came on, they had their little duet, Marcellina left. Now Carabino's coming on. They're going to sing for a while, and then other characters are going to join them. But Susanna is always there. She's always present in the first act and in most of the opera. It really is her show. Yeah, it, it, it is. Well, Carabino sings a This Is Who I Am song. And, and who is this Carabino? You, you know better than most. <laughs> I've played him many times. So Carabino is just, he, he sings in such a classy way mm-hmm. about being a boy going through puberty. Yeah. <laughs> It's so true. I'm hot. I'm cold. Every woman makes me blush. (laughs) In this beautiful Mozartian opera, you know, you listen to it and and he does catch the breathlessness of Mm -hmm. that quality of the boy in the tempo and this constantly moving orchestral accompaniment. You know, you Mm -hmm. get that feeling of "Ah, ah," breathlessness in it. But then he also has these big, long, legato, soaring lines with beautiful high notes. And he says in this aria, non so più cosa son cosa faccio. He says, I don't know anymore what I am, what I'm doing. That's the title of the aria. That's puberty in a nutshell, isn't it? It is puberty in a nutshell. And he says, I'm here, I'm there. I I see one woman and I go crazy on fire and I see another woman and I turn to ice and I can't move and I'm shaking. And that's what he's describing to her is all the crazy things he's feeling. And if you didn't know that, it would just sound like this beautiful Mozartian opera aria 
But once you know the meaning of that Italian, it gives it so much more complexity. Let's play a little clip of that. that carabino anything more you want to tell us about the experience of being that young man who doesn't know what he's thinking or feeling i actually loved playing carabino because you get to just be a goofball on the stage all the time and you're kind of a little bit of the comic relief in a comedy does that make sense yeah no no he's he's charming beguiling he's, charming. he's just having a good time and he gets them into so much trouble like every time carabino comes on stage in this opera you can assume it's not going to end well <laughs> In this scene, he uh, gets caught in in a chamber alone with a woman. And that's a big no-no. He gets caught alone with Susanna, their friends. Later on in the opera, he gets caught in the closet of the Countess's bedroom. They weren't doing anything, but he gets caught. And then again, in the fourth act, when Carabino shows up, he almost blows the whole plan Mm. because the Count catches him again. So when he comes on, it's like red flag, red alert. But I feel a little guilty because I played Carabino so many times and I just, I love singing it, but in Ellie Uncomposed, I almost completely cut this character. I noticed. He's, <laughs> he's like the one, I, Basilio gets more time than Carabino gets. Oh, much more time. Well, I mean, Carabino flies by like bumping into Elizabeth at one point and that's, that's kind of it. Or he gets mentioned a few times, but. I don't know why I did that. I felt, I guess I wanted to focus on the characters who were in play, Marcellina, Susanna, the Countess, Figaro, and Carabino, he's not really, this is, the opera's not about him. Although I used to say that all the time when people would ask me, <laughs> what is marriage of Figaro about? Oh, it's about a page boy uh, who gets into trouble. It all depends <laughs> on your perspective. It all, I mean, in this particular scene, before he gets caught, talk about comedy, this whole bit where he's 
hiding behind this chair. And then Mm -hmm. the count also has to avoid being caught. And so they're both hiding behind the same chair and moving around. It's just, it is so fun to watch that. And talk about your acting and your your physicality during that. I mean, that's essential to this bit of the show. And so fun. Fun to watch. Very fun to watch. (laughs) Until, Until, of course... The Count is raging about how I find this carabino everywhere and lifts up this thing to demonstrate. And sure enough, (laughs) there's carabino. (laughs) Well, Figaro has another strategy he's going to employ to put pressure on the Count to make sure that he gets to marry his beloved Susanna. He's going to rally the other ordinary folk. He may be a slightly elevated ordinary folk because of the position he has, but but he's he's in good with all the, the workers and the local peasants, and they all show up at his command. How does that help? Well, you know, you really get the impression in the first, op- the first play, opera, Barber Seville, that everyone loves Figaro, you know, except for Bartolo. He's just a loved kind of guy. He yeah. makes friends easily. He's one of those guys, if he ran for office, he'd win. Yeah. You know, he could run for office. He's very personable and fun and charming. Uh, and I tried to convey that in Elian Composed, too. I tried mm-hmm. to make the reader fall in love with him in one scene. This is a very clever tactic, is he gets all, he brings in the chorus for the first time, mm-hmm. right? And he rallies them all up for a, for a presentation of the veil scene with the Count to kind of publicly put the Count on the spot and have him publicly declare again, no, I have abolished this right. And it doesn't work, but it's definitely a tactic. Yeah, it's like saying to someone, oh, I'm so excited you gave this $5,000 donation to such and such charity, you know, in this big forum. It's the same idea, right? Yay, we're all going to sing and celebrate what a what an enlightened yes, master you are. you are. So we're going to celebrate this proclamation you've made and don't you dare go back on it. They're, they're not singing that, but that is the undercurrent of what's going on. Yeah, a lot of the genius of this opera is what's not being said. Mm-hmm. They're saying one thing, but what they mean is another. And it's a great way to put it. Don't you dare go back on it. Yeah. Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast, where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. 
Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am having such a good time here with Valerie Niemerg. Welcome back, Valerie. Thanks. Thank you, Pat, for having me. Well, we are doing The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart, and would you honor us with a good Italian pronunciation? <laughs> Le Nozze di Figaro. Oh, I'm so glad I asked you to do that. I, <laughs> I, I love Italian operas, but my Italian... Not great. At any rate, I apologize for any and all mispronunciations, including the names that I am about to read, because I would like to thank the people who were involved in creating this amazing, amazing CD that we're listening to. It was recorded in 1981 by the London Philharmonic Orchestra under the leadership of Sir Georg Scholte. It features the London Opera Chorus and the soloist, Count Almaviva. Thomas Allen sings that role. The Countess Almaviva is Kiri Takanawa. Susanna, Lucia Pop, Figaro, Samuel Ramey, Carabino, <laughs> Frederica von Stadt, Marcellina, Jane Berbier, Dr. Bartolo is Kurt Moll, and Don Basilio is Robert Tier. Thank you, one and all, for your work in creating this beautiful music. And of course, thanks to Mozart, Lorenzo de Ponti, and Beaumarchais for creating this work that these people can dazzle us with. Well, do you know what time it is here on Opera for Everyone? Every beginning of the second half, we have the Opera Helmet Quiz. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, putting you on the spot. Well, we didn't even finish technically the first act, but I'm going to ask you to loop that into your Opera Helmet recap of Act One of Figaro. A recap of Act One of Figaro. Wow. So we are in the estate of the Count Amaviva in Seville, Spain in late 18th century, right at the beginning of the Enlightenment. And this is the second story in a series of three, all of which got made into operas eventually. And Figaro is engaged to the beautiful chambermaid Susanna and wants to marry her. But what stands in his way is his boss, his employer, the Count Almaviva, who, though he has publicly renounced his feudal right to the virginity of his employees on their wedding night, he privately still seeks that right out and offers inducements such as dowries and bribes and threats, etc. Yeah. So that is where we are. And we've met other characters like the spinster Marcellina, who's the head of the household. And she has a contract that Figaro foolishly signed a few years ago, saying that if she lent him some money and he couldn't pay it back by a certain time, he would gallantly end her spinsterhood and marry her. Well, guess what? <laughs> Figaro has not paid back that money. And Marcellina is marching around the estate, waving the contract in everybody's face. In mm. particular, the Count, who has the right to decide whether or not the contract should be honored and whether or not it's a valid contract. And he keeps threatening Susanna, the intended, with said contract. Um, we met a myriad of characters in Act One. We met Figaro and Susanna, our leads, trying to get married. We met the Count himself when he came into the chamber and caught Susanna talking to Carabino, his page boy, which was, you know, notorious for a page boy to be alone in the room with the chambermaid, even though yes. they, were they were just chatting. 
We've met Bartolo, the miserly grump from the previous opera who's just angry with Figaro for stealing away his bride, Rosina, so that she could marry the Count. Vengeance, vengeance. Vengeance, la vendetta. <laughs> By the way, the Count is married. We've even met, though we didn't mention him before, the slimy music teacher Basilio, <laughs> mm. who is just one of these busybodies who's got his fingers in everybody's pot and wants to be involved in everything so that he can get other people into trouble and make himself look good. Um, so yep. he's helping out the Count by passing messages and... <laughs> sending things along. So there's the first act. At the end of the first act, the chorus comes in, led by Figaro, with a wedding veil, asking the Count yes. to publicly bless the wedding veil, which he publicly does so well, <laughs> and makes many public promises. And at the very end, as punishment, the Count sends Carabino away to uh, the military to join his regiment, and Figaro ends the act by singing a very silly aria, sending Carabino off and dressing him up like a soldier. Oh, it's wonderful. And I just love that. It's a wonderful <laughs> the send off. That's as much as that song as we're going to get. But <laughs> like I said, everyone, your job is to listen to this entire Opera for Everyone show. You'll be ready to see the opera. Watch a version of Marriage of Figaro. I'm, you can find it everywhere. It's one of the most popular operas on the planet. You'll find it. <laughs> And then after that, you need to read Valerie's book, Ellie Uncomposed, a novel opera, Valerie Niemerg. Should we spell your last name? Probably. Sure. N-I-E-M-E-R-G. And the book is available anywhere you can click. Yes. Yes, that's, what, that's how I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to do my own little subcomponent of our Opera Helmet quiz and just recap for folks who are joining about this amazing book. This book I can't even imagine, Valerie, how you how you did this. You must have had a wall with multicolored post-it notes everywhere because so many ideas and plots and there's just so much that's interwoven. It's so easy to read. It is so full of humor, pathos. It's got it all. And it's got a modern day plot woven in with this, I don't know, would you call it magical realism? Yes. That's how it feels to me. I didn't even know that was a thing until I wrote the book. And somebody said, this is magical realism. Right. Because this crazy, magical, incomprehensible stuff happens. But it's not like she wakes up at the end from a dream. It has actually happened to her. And she learns about herself. She learns about these other characters. And she discovers what's important to her. Now, that makes it sound a little bit sappy when I put it that way. <laughs> but it's moving. And because the book is shot through with humor, in keeping with Figaro and all the humor that's there with serious topics, it, it just, it is, it's magical in its own right. I, I just, I cannot recommend this enough for, for anyone who enjoys understanding humanity, understanding people, and wants to have fun with an opera. So, brava, Valerie. Thank you, Pat. Well, all right, we need to move on with our with our Figaro story and talk a little bit about Act Two because we have a very important character who did not appear in the first act. And that was no accident. I think that was one of Mozart's great works of genius or de Ponte's to put off the introduction of this character until the opening of the second act because you, you meet everybody in that first act. It's just character after character comes on and sings an aria and you almost feel like you got to take notes to pay yeah. attention to all these characters. You do, or you need the costumer's help to yeah, distinguish. Oh, yeah, that's very good. So the second act opens with a character we have not met yet. Yes. Even though we met all these other characters. <laughs> but we should have been asking ourselves the whole first act, 
where is the countess? Yes. Where is Rosina? We haven't seen her. We've heard a couple references to her, but the whole first opera was spent in courting and winning this woman. Yep. And she's not even in the first act. And where is she? She's like an urn on a shelf. And <laughs> the curtain of the second act comes oh. up and she sings this beautiful aria, Porgia Amor, for, oh, love, some restoration, some consolation on me, basically confessing to us right away, I'm abandoned, I'm alone, I'm forgotten. That's why. Where's the countess? She's forgotten. Yeah. And she says, give me back my husband's lost affection or let me die. It's, it's just, it's so moving because this is what you were talking about earlier, the truth of human experience that shows up in these operas at times. And this is a truth. I mean, she's not the first woman who's been actively, aggressively, passionately courted by a man who shows all his best qualities to her. And those qualities still exist in him. And that's part of what she's mourning here. But he's veered off into another direction. I mean, he's the count after all. He's the law of the land in all of the area that surrounds him. And he can do whatever he wants. And he's decided he wants to, to sample many experiences and pleasures. And the Countess or Rosina, perhaps she was only a conquest. I mean, she's hoping not, but seems maybe to be the case. I hope not. I think in Ellie Uncomposed, I tried to bring them back to a meaningful understanding of one another and a meaningful relationship and kind of blame the Count straying on his unlimited power and wealth. He needs nothing. He has no strife, no struggles. So he's got to go invent struggles. He's got to go and make conquests out of his servants. So I try to hope in Ellie to kind of bring some depth back to that relationship. <laughs> yes, but maybe in a tragic sort of way, as opposed to the comic <laughs> resolution of Figaro. That's true. I know. Yeah. And that's as much as I'll say. <laughs> Shall we hear just a little bit of her opening song from Act Two? Oh 
listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. And, well, that was the Countess. We finally met her, and uh, she's sad, poor woman. I have a funny story to tell about that. It's very brief. Okay. The first time I saw Marriage of Figaro live, it was at the Met with Renee Fleming singing The Countess. Mm. And, you know, people think that opera singers just get up and do this. You know, we're kind of bored one day to do this. And I'm always trying to explain to them, no, it's really athletic. It's really hard. <laughs> and then the curtain comes up on Renee Fleming sprawled across <gasps> this divan, like just laying down with her oh. head kind of hanging off the end. And she sings this porgia more absolutely flawlessly in this prostrate position, like completely reclined and you know, maybe one arm hanging off the back. Like, the, it's unbelievable to watch that. If you can YouTube that, I highly suggest it. Oh, I'd love it. Actually, here's a question I want to ask a singer. I remember hearing about, you know, the last uh, scene in Manon Lescaut, where she's dying in the desert and she's laying down and she has to sing this. First of all, she's dying. She's laying down and yet she has to sing this amazing aria. And I just read a comment about how difficult that is. And yet I see in operas a lot of arias sung where the singer is laying down. How, why is that harder? How is that harder? What's your thought on that? Well, I'm going to claim the fifth because I'm a mezzo and I've never had to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I always have a quick death. Carmen gets stabbed and she's down. Okay. Um, in Otello, I get stabbed and I was down. So Technically, I've never had to do something that challenging. But you know it's challenging. It is. It is. I've tried. Just because, like, I've seen clips or I've mm. seen other sopranos do it. How are they doing that? So I've tried and I've been like, you know what? If I had to do this, mm. I would have to practice laying down. I would have to practice this aria and then, like, not look like I'm working. Right. <laughs> you know, like, you like to, to look like I'm relaxing but not working. We're actually athletically on the inside. To sing these sadarias, you got to be quite a powerhouse. Right. Well, it made me think of one of the scenes you describe in the book, on the modern setting, where there's a masterclass being held, and the instructor in the masterclass tells this elegantly dressed soprano that she needs to get down on her hands and knees to, to open things up to make greater sound. And it was also, I think, jangling in the back of my head as I was picturing these different postures that singers might need to or want to get in. Yeah, we experiment a lot. There's a great book that was that came out when I was in music school called A Soprano on Her Head. And it, it deals with some of these issues of, you know, some of the weird things you have to do to really be a good actress, right. basically, to really sell the scene as an opera singer. This crazy athleticism going on underneath you, but be able to keep the rest of your body open to the drama. Uh, of course, of course. Okay, speaking of drama, act two. <laughs> I giggle just, anybody says act two of Marriage of Figaro and I giggle. I can't help myself. <laughs> well, there's there's plenty to giggle at, but can you help us get through act two to what I know is a justly famous slow build, but massively impressive finale to act two? You know, one could argue that the whole of act two is the act two finale. <laughs> Whereas in act one, we had this scene, you know, between Marcellina and Susanna and this mm -hmm. scene between the trio, between the Count and Susanna and Basilio. It was all scenes. But in act two, it's one long scene mm -hmm. and it's much ado about nothing. 
Surely not. (laughs) It's a a bunch of absurdity. The Countess is introduced. Then Susanna comes in and you realize that she's already told the Countess that her husband is making advances towards her. Mm -hmm. And they're plotting together. And then Figaro comes in and they plot together and they they come up with a plan. And then Figaro leaves and Carabino comes in and he's the plan. He was supposed to leave and, (laughs) you know, be sent off to the military, but he's the plan. They're going to dress him up like a girl and have the Count court him in the garden. And this is the plan, you know, silly comic opera plan. The Count's going to court him in the darkness of the garden and court Carabino instead of Susanna. Um, So they dress him up. But then, of course, once they get him dressed in girls' clothes, which I just have to take a moment to say, as a mezzo who's played Carabino several times, as a woman (laughs) playing a man trying to behave like a woman, that was just beyond my abilities and like just And also that Carabino seems, you know, we've already talked about his uh, uncontrolled urges of puberty that <laughs> that he's loving the attention of these two women that he flirts with all the time they're they're fawning their attention all over him and putting yes. clothing on him and it's just it's an he's adorable it. scene they're having fun and yeah. it's the word is charm in the first mm-hmm. half of this act and it's nice to see the countess smile the audience rejoices that the countess is smiling and you know she started the act by saying she wanted to die so it's definitely a contrast and then what what happens? Of course, what has to happen when there's a man <laughs> alone in the room with the two women? We had yeah. this problem already in the first act. Yep, and uh, here it is again. Here it is again. Um, and Susanna, I think she steps into a closet or something, or uh, she steps out and comes in another door. But it actually seems like it's just the countess alone with Carabino. Right. When guess who comes knocking at the door? The Count. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Yeah, right. All right. Yeah. So we launch into this incredible landmark ensemble piece that is the Act 2 finale. And it begins when the Count, I believe, it begins when the Count knocks on the door and we have a problem. We've got Carabino. She locks him in the closet yeah. um, and, you know, dressed like a girl. And in comes the Count. She says, oh, I wasn't feeling well. And then, of course, of course, Carabino has to knock something over in the closet. Oh, yeah, because he can't be quiet. <laughs> of course. No, that's not drama. <laughs> He's all gangly. Um, <laughs> so um, immediately the Count says, there's a man. There's a man and you're cheating on me. You know, here he is gallivanting all over the estate with every woman. It's just my lady's maid, Susanna, in the closet. Yes, then, uh, but you know, his wife can't have a can't cheat on him. He can cheat on her all he wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she says it's Susanna. But of course, Susanna can't verbally respond because it's not Susanna. Mm-hmm. And then Susanna sneaks back in. She was in another closet or something. So then we have this trio where Susanna's kind of hiding behind some piece of furniture, yeah. um, saying, "Oh no, oh no, this is terrible." And the count and the countess, the baritone and the soprano, are battling it out. Open that door. No, open that door. Yes. So finally, the count says, "Fine." I'm going to go downstairs and get the key. There's a key. But first, I'm going to lock whoever's in here in the suite by themselves. So they can't get out of the suite, even if they get out of the closet. (laughs) So he takes his countess with him. You know, Mm -hmm. I can't have you releasing the man in the closet. He makes it very clear he doesn't trust her at all. Right. Yeah. Which is ironic to me. It's ironic because he's chasing everything in skirts. As far as we know, he's all over the estate gallivanting with every woman in his employ. Well, it's like anyone who behaves badly. They think everyone Ah. else behaves as badly as they do because he's not to be trusted. We know that. Yeah. So he's assuming she's not. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is all very innocent. And it's such a great picture of what Mozart and De Ponte and Beaumarchais are trying to say about the role of the aristocracy and how this innocent woman who really loves her husband is the one being 
persecuted here. But it's funny. In this scene, the whole thing is funny. <laughs> so they leave. And of course, Susanna comes out from behind the furniture and unlocks the door and lets Carabino out of the closet. And they have this adorable little duet that's like less than a minute long. You know, and they, they go back and forth. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Carabino's absolutely freaked out. He's going to kill me. I'm going to die. I'm a dead man. I'm jumping out the window. <laughs> So the uh, Aprite Presso Aprite ends with Carabino jumping out the window. Only thing he can do. Susanna describes him running across the estate, half uh, half dressed like a girl, I think. It depends what production you're in. Mm. And then immediately Susanna then goes in the closet and locks the door. And the Count and Countess come back into the room with the key. And then right as he's about to open the door, the Countess doesn't know that Susanna's in there, confesses and says, okay, okay, listen. Yes, yes, yes. It's Carabino, and we were just having this silly match. And then there's another great duet between the Count and the Countess. And and she's scared. Please don't kill him. And she throws herself in front of the closet and on and on. And, And of course, he opens the door and out comes... Susanna, yes. there's this great moment. You can hear he's he's totally shocked. It's Susanna because the cat just lied to him and gave him this story about Carabino. Susanna? And then you hear the countess on the other side of the stage go, Susanna? Like, yeah. Yeah. How did that happen? And everyone in the audience is yeah. laughing. <laughs> yeah, enraptured with this whole absurdity. And from then on, it just gets more and more absurd. And I, I won't go into the details of how things happen, but the gardener, like everyone ends up in the countess's chamber, yeah. which I found out is historically almost impossible. But that's what would, would have been a huge comic part of this mm-hmm. is that the drunk gardener actually comes running into the countess's bedchamber complaining because somebody landed in his geraniums or whatever outside. Yeah, well, he he might be carrying even broken flower pots just to enhance the comedy. Yeah, Yeah. and he's complaining to the Count that somebody jumped out the window of the Countess's bedchamber and fell into his garden and ruined his beautiful flowers. And then Figaro comes in and he's like, oh, don't listen to this drunk idiot. Get out of here. And and they, the four of them go at it. And then just when that gets as absurd as you can imagine, in comes the trio from the first act. Marcellina waving her contract. Bartolo saying, ha ha I'm going to uh, win. I'm going to win. And Basilio just being slimy, basically. And they sing their little trio. And they have this incredible finale section where they alternate with the quartet and the trio. And then, of course, we have to bring the chorus in at the end. (laughs) Everybody. And the whole cast, the whole estate somehow, has marched into the Countess's bedroom and is singing this finale in which one by one every character has arrived yes yes it's amazing and sprinkled in there there are these poignant comments by the countess where she says something like if i survive this storm i will fear no further shipwreck this is as bad as it gets if i can if i can get through this and one of the best comments that i love in the midst of all of this is when figaro says we, we we need to end this farce, right? It's classic farce with all these doors yes. opening and closing, people coming and going. This comedy must be ended. And according to theatrical practice, how do you end a comedy? He says, let's have a marriage ceremony because that's their goal. <laughs> so it's it's very self-aware. It's, it's a brilliant masterpiece of writing, but then the music and how Mozart takes these ideas and layers it all together. It's It's phenomenal. And it builds and builds and builds. Yeah. Yeah. So we're just going to hear a little sample of the end, the very end of the second act and all of this mayhem and comedy. (laughs) 
just ended the second act with that amazing finale, <laughs> Marriage of Figaro. It's a four-act opera, by the way. What do we need to know about Act 3, Valerie? <laughs> act 3 is not nearly as complex. It's a, kind of a breather after Act 2, but there are some tender moments in it. We hear again from the Countess. She sings the beautiful aria Dove Sono, mm-hmm. again, lamenting her position, that she has to ask a servant girl to help her to get her husband back. Reminding us they're always conscious of the class difference. That's right. Yeah. And then we have, finally, the Count gets to sing an aria. And it's very difficult aria, emotionally, for baritones to have to sing, because he's really being a kind of a jerk, you know, (laughs) definitely by our standards. But he's standing up for what he believes is his right. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> so I Javinta La Causa is a great masterpiece of music, but a very difficult drama. And then we have the courtroom scene in which we actually bring the contract to a judge. Yes, a judge in the Count's employ. <laughs> yes. And at this point, the Count pretty much believes that Susanna is not going to do what he wants him to do. So we we have no reason to believe we're going to get a good verdict from him. And there is an awkward moment for 21st century audiences here because we have a, a, I guess, an attorney or a notary, um, but he has a stutter. Yeah. And that was kind of laughed at back then. So this was seen as sort of a comic insert into the opera that he would have this stutter in the scene. But the big reveal happens during the courtroom scene. Yeah. The big reveal happens. And that is that it is discovered that the, the only thing Figaro has from his family is a birthmark on his arm that looks like a spatula, at which point Marcellina grabs her breast, jumps up, <gasps> a birthmark that looks like a spatula. I mean, I admit, when I first saw Figaro, I never saw this coming. Marcellina has been waving this marriage contract around, is actually Figaro's mother. Yes, we said she was a generation older. <laughs> yep. And to top it off, mm. La Vendetta, the Dr. Bartolo from the first act, who was just so desperate to get vengeance on yes. Figaro, that's his dad. <laughs> yeah, that I, I agree. The very first time I saw this, I hadn't read the synopsis. I mean, that's the thing about an opera. We always say there are no spoilers in opera because they give you all the synopsis when you walk into the theater. You There you have it all. But I hadn't read it. I just went in and enjoyed the opera. And it really does come as a surprise, like this woman who's been so cranky. And here she is suddenly the mother. In an instant, the relationships have resorted themselves and changed. Yeah, and she and Susanna are now best friends. Yes. And she's giving her motherly advice by the end of the third act. And everything has changed. It's a beautiful sextet that happens after this revelation. Well, I'm, I want to just insert here the Marcellina character in your book, who gets a lot more time and attention and is much more humanized than in any production I've ever seen of Figaro. But you really give her poignant backstory. And she even gets to speak about giving up her child. That is just rushed over in the opera. Right. Well, I mean, there's some implication that perhaps the child was stolen because there are jewels with him and all of that in the libretto. But I love the way you deal with it in the book because she is a woman who who had to, uh, who she wasn't married. She was with child and she did what she had to do. And it's gently, tenderly, but poignantly handled in the book. And I just thought, wow, that is, that is such a right way to see this character. And we'll get to it in act four sequentially, but there's a song that she is given. I think Basilio also has a song that often are cut because they're not central to the main plot. But I appreciate knowing that that song is there and I can hear it on this CD version that we've been listening to includes that song. And I love it because it humanizes Marcellina a little bit. And I think she deserves to be humanized because she's played for comedy pretty much. And this amazing moment when Figaro discovers his mother and his father have been right there all along. It's just, it goes very quickly. Things are speeding up. It's a comic. It's a comedy. No criticism here, but I like stepping aside and examining. It's fun. Thank you. I loved writing that bit of the book because for me, the whole story was about, it's really about a, a woman kind of finding herself in her own life. Elizabeth finds herself in her own 21st century life. Yes. And to do that, she kind of has to go back in time and meet these 
other women. Right. Kind of, they're all kind of tragic characters. The Countess abandoned by her husband, Susanna fighting for her right to her wedding night. And then we have this Marcellina, who is really a tragic character. Her, right. She had to give up her child. And that is not an easy thing to do. She had to leave that child because she had no way to support it or take care of it on some doorstep or something. So I, I deeply appreciate you bringing that up because I loved writing it. And I loved writing the moment when Figaro realizes I have a mother. I have a mother. Oh, yes, yes. And he's so happy about it. And you deepen that experience of the unwed mother in the 18th century by having another echo of another young woman who is dismissed from her position because she is pregnant, a word that they don't want said out loud in the 18th century. <laughs> Which, by the way, I just love this bit a few times. Like, wait, I'm in the 18th century, Elizabeth says, and we're all speaking English in Seville, Spain. How does that work? And we just move on. It's hysterical. Like, it's, it's part of this comedy that just roll with me here. If you're going to have a good time, just roll with me. And it, we do have a good time with that. Well, okay. So family reunion. And Marcellina is going to get to get married. And Marcellina is going to marry and she's going to have everything she wanted. So it's no coincidence that suddenly she's a nice person. Yes. She's going to have her family. She has a daughter through Susanna. She's going to have a daughter-in-law. She has a son. She has a husband. That's all she wanted. Dr. Bartolo makes good finally. Yes. Should have done <laughs> all those years ago. And that's all she wanted was her right as a woman to be treated with respect and dignity mm. that um, her womanhood entitles her to a mother, a wife. These are, this is all she wanted, but the problems aren't over. No, this problem with Marcellina is gone, but the count's still after Susanna yes. and the bigger problem of the countess being abandoned by her husband still remains. So a new plot is concocted just between the Countess and Susanna this time. Figaro's not in on this. He's not part of this one, no. And they they come up with a good one. They come up with a good plan, and they sing one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written, Sularia, a duet in which the Countess dictates to Susanna a note that will be sent to her husband. So the, the note needs to be in the words of the Countess, because she knows what will seduce her husband, but it needs to be written in Susanna's penmanship so that the Count thinks it's coming from Susanna. Yeah. And the plan is that she will pass this note to the Count at the wedding, and the Count will meet her then out in the garden later that night, and she will give herself to him. But what's really going to happen is the Countess is going to dress as Susanna, yeah. and he will just seduce his own wife. Yeah. And then, ha ha, buddy, <laughs> I know what you really like. Well, let's hear just a little bit of that beautiful. Sularia.
another note is written. We should mention that that there are several pieces of paper that fly around in Figaro, and it's all part of the comedy, part of the intrigue, and part of what you pick up on <laughs> in your book. At, there are these anonymous notes uh, that appear throughout the book and that have characters doing different things. And at one point, one of the characters just shouts, no more anonymous notes. <laughs> but anyway, this one is not anonymous. It is uh, from Susanna, theoretically, to the Count, and it is sealed with a pin from the Countess. And, you know, there may be just a little blood that comes from the Count when he encounters that pin, but that's okay. He's, he's willing to endure that for future pleasure. <laughs> Well, we end this act, Act 3, in celebration. Yes, because it's finally happened. The marriage of Figaro happens at the end of this act. They do get married. And at the wedding dance, the Count is past the note. And this is how Act 3 ends, with this supposed tryst set up between him and Susanna. But really, it's going to be between him and his wife. At least... That's the plan. That's the plan. You know, he thinks it's all going to work out fine with Susanna, which is why he finally is very excited about the wedding. And he brings in musicians and a gorgeous feast. And there's going to be fireworks. It's going to be magnificent. And everybody's feeling pretty good about where they stand. Well, Act 4 opens. And we we get to meet a character we have heard about, but haven't really spent much time with, a a Compromario, as I understand. Compromario, yeah. Barbarina, who does not appear as herself in your book, which I find hysterical. (laughs) (laughs) You got to read the book to figure that one out. (laughs) But she's been tasked by the Count with returning the pin. As instructed in the letter, the pin needs to be returned to Susanna. Confirm the tryst. Yes, yes. That's confirmation that he will be there. And when Figaro overhears this, instantly, all of his faith and trust in Susanna brushed aside, and he suspects that Susanna, in fact, has set up this liaison with the Count. Figaro, you should know better. I think it's important, though, to, even though this little moment with Barbarina, it opens with this little aria uh, that young sopranos are often cast in because it's sort of an entree opportunity to get out on stage and say something not too Mm -hmm. difficult, but still beautiful. But it kind of speaks, I think, that here we are being introduced to yet another character. And I think that that's not an accident again. I think Mozart is saying the amount of the lower classes that are suffering under the thumb of the hierarchy is endless. And I could keep bringing them out on stage and here's another one and here's another one. We're focusing on Susanna and the Countess, but Barbarina is another one. She's crying, basically. Figaro finds her crying because she's afraid the Count is going to be angry with her and hurt her or do something worse because she lost this pin. She's failed in her job. Yeah. But yeah, then we move on and Figaro... And instantly jumps into jealousy and rage yeah. and runs off to do his own plotting. Well, and then Marcellina comes out and she gets to play a maternal role with Figaro. That's right. He is so upset. And she says, calm down, my son, calm down. It's going to be okay. The pin doesn't prove anything. You can suspect, but it's not proof. And I love her doing that because she's playing her role appropriately with her son But she's also understanding of Susanna about like, let's give Susanna a chance. And I love that. And depending on how it's staged, she can watch all the things that are going to transpire next. Because she does say in the libretto, right before this song that we mentioned, 
that she gets yes. to sing. Surely all women ought to protect each other. It is our duty because we are so maltreated by our husbands. I, I just think, wow, that she's really getting an important line. This is not from the 21st century. This is written in the 18th century. This shows up in De Ponte's libretto. I just think it's remarkable. It is. And it's also a testament to what was really going on with the character. She was, she really, you get this feeling from the first act that she's just a spinster after a younger man. Yeah. But when you get here, no, she was unjustly treated. All she wanted was what she was due, her family. And now she gets to be that. And she's being a good, sincere mother to figure out, not just siding with him against Susanna. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's being a good, sincere mother to him and telling him what she believes is the truth. And so she gets this, this little piece, which is often cut in productions. And we'll just hear a little bit of that to get a sense of Marcellina in her full characterization. Il capro e la capretta. The billy goat and the she goat. A little bit of a story. <laughs> She's got a point to make. She has got a point. <laughs> That was Marcellina in The Marriage of Figaro, a more fully realized character now. Back to our, our little game of deception, our characters in the dark, in the pine grove. Yeah, most of Act 4 takes place in the dark. That's a good point. But it's after the wedding, it's nighttime, and mm. people might have been drinking, wandering through the pines. And we know that this tryst is supposed to happen between the Count and the Countess dressed as Susanna. Yes. But out comes Figaro, and he has this moment. We talk about, you know, Marcellina had a real change of character. Yep. But now we see Figaro really do this flip of character 
where he sings this aria that's really railing on women because he's so convinced Susanna is cheating on him. He hasn't listened to his mother, who said, no, hold back judgment. <laughs> no, and he sings this really beautiful, raging aria, apriti un po' quegli occhi, open up your eyes a little bit, guys. He basically yeah. says it to the audience, gentlemen, open up your eyes. Your women are lying to you. They're deceiving you. They're cheating on you all over the place. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Is... Shades of Cosi Fantuti, no? <laughs> yes, like shades of Cosi Fantuti, but kind of a statement about the battle of the sexes in yep. You know, late 18th century Europe and in general, one looking at the other and always complaining, going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And yet we, the audience, know what Susanna's up to. So he's railing and he has all these things to say, but we know he's wrong, which is fascinating. In a 3,000 seat auditorium, there's not a single person who agrees with him. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe they do, but not in this particular case. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> And now we come to what I think, and I think many would agree with me, is the most intimate and beautiful moment in Mozart's marriage of Figaro. Wow. It is a masterpiece of simplicity. And it is Junzia Finemomen. Finally comes the moment, sung by Susanna. She sits down in the garden and lays out her setup that she's going to switch places with the countess in a minute. And she sings this aria for the first time in the opera. This woman has been on stage for four <laughs> acts and she hasn't gotten one second to sing about herself. It's been about the chaos, the comedy, the kid in the closet, the jumping off the balcony, mm. the countess being cheated on. It's always been about somebody else. What does the count want? What, is, what can I do for Fira? And this soprano has done 150 pages of recitative. <sighs> now, she had a small aria in the second act, but it wasn't about her. It was a, making fun of Carabino and having fun mm -hmm. with the countess and Carabino. It wasn't her story. And we have waited until the final moment of this opera to find out what Susanna's story is. What does Susanna want? And she kneels down and sings this beautiful song, De Vieni Non Tardar. Please come, don't tally anymore. Don't wait. Come, just come. And you realize in this super, super simple setting, you know, a lot of sopranos are frustrated with this part because they do all this work for, I'm literally on page 416 of the score. She's sung 416 pages. She finally gets to her moment. And it's not showy or flashy at all. 
It's in a very mm. simple key, in a simple rhythmic structure. It's a simple, honest, beautiful melody that Mozart does so well. And she's just saying, I just want my husband. Yeah. Oh, I just want my husband. That's what I want. And the first time I saw this performed in an opera, I sobbed. After all this absurdity with closets and keys and notes, here's what it's about, folks. We have an innocent woman who just wants her husband. And because of all the craziness in our world, she has to do all the silliness to get him. And it's a beautiful moment because we're moved. Mm -hmm. the, the audience is moved. It's exquisite drama here because everything is dead honesty from Susanna's heart. And yet Figaro's hiding there and she knows it. Yeah. And likely to misunderstand, but it doesn't matter because what she speaks is truth. Figaro, of course, is so sure of his own convictions and his own suspicions that he assumes the bliss she is awaiting is the bliss she's anticipating with the Count. And he just lets himself get angrier and angrier. And she, she's okay with that because she knows it's going to get sorted out. Yes, I think so. And she's a very wise woman. Maybe she's been getting counsel from Marcellina. <laughs> she's been wise from the start, I think. <laughs> yes, yeah, she, was, she was always very wise. to wrap up 
the show, our show, their show. (laughs) And I will kill the suspense here and say, Susanna's voice ultimately is recognized by Figaro after this piece. But he plays with her just a little bit before he lets on with Mm -hmm. her. But I mean, it's very loving. It's so sweet. It's a very good interpretation of married life. Yeah. Back and forth. Yeah. Goof around with each other a little bit, but the love is strong and it shines through. Carabine is going to show up and he's going to... Mess things up again. (laughs) Yes. he does. (laughs) No closets to hide in this time, thank goodness. But finally, the Count is going to arrive for the assigned rendezvous with Susanna. And there he is cozying up to the woman dressed as Susanna, but who is in fact the Countess. Yeah. And as a gift, he gives her a ring, a beautiful Mm. ring as sort of a thank you for giving me this favor. But, you know, Carabino bumbles in and Figaro's bumbling around. In fact, a lot of people are bungling through the Act 4 finale in the darkness. Yes. (laughs) And there's quite a lot of comedy in this Act 4 finale. But the Countess runs off into the darkness because of all this bumbling around. And in the end, the Count accuses them all of treachery and says they're all going to be fired and thrown out and everything. And and the very last thing that happens at the end of the Act 4 finale and the end of the opera is the Countess walks out on stage with the ring in her hand. And so the Count... Mm -hmm. He knows. He knows. He knows. The Count is not an idiot, and he knows... I thought that voice sounded familiar or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. He's in trouble. And in front of all his staff at the end of the Act 4, he's there, and he goes down on his knees and begs his wife for forgiveness. Forgive me. And she says, even though you could not forgive them, I will forgive you. And they sing a nice, cheerful little close-it-up ensemble, the whole chorus. Everybody's coupled up properly. It's a comedy, after all. And Figaro, by the way, references that once more in this. Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) It's a comedy that uh, ends happily. We hope. But as you mentioned, in the back of our heads, we're a little concerned about the, uh, the marriage between the Count and the Countess. But that's where our story ends. The comedy does not solve all the problems. Uh, And there is a third Beaumarchais play Mm -hmm. after this one. And you find out that things got much worse uh, for the Count and Countess after that. And it it just never made a great opera. So it hasn't gone down into the great annals of opera history as a masterpiece. But it's out there if you want to go see it. La Mère Coupable. The Guilty Mother. So you can go check that out. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, I want to know, are there other books in the future? Will we hear more from Ellie or more from you? Well, I have two series that I'm working on. There's the Ellie series, and then there's a Cold War spy novel series. So I might publish that one next. But Ellie uncomposes the first in a series of five stories. And not all of them are opera-centric. This one was heavily opera-centric. But they do take place within operas. And the second one takes place within an opera, but it's not as heavily operatic, let's say, because the opera, though strong, is, is uh, I'll just give that away, it's Alexander Bordin's Prince Igor. Mm. It has some beautiful music in it, the, but it has flaws, and that's, a, that's the reason it's not often performed by major companies. But it has some great music that I couldn't resist to accompany Ellie's next adventure. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Well, Valerie, I've had so much fun speaking with you, talking about opera, and I, I hope you will come back on Opera for Everyone. I'd love to. This was a blast. You're wonderful. Thank you for what you do for opera, Patricia. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit of the final music from The Marriage of Figaro.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable, because we believe opera is for everyone. Thank you.